0: Week in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> we will probably, as a congregation, never ever revisit this passage. Think about that. And so, I think it worthwhile for us to spend a little time and just try to glean as much as we possibly can from these verses. They are so rich. And just a reminder about the Background and the context from which Peter speaks, he is writing to people who are undergoing terrific suffering for their faith, the first century church. They are being persecuted. Many have lost their homes, uh, lost family members. Uh, many have lost everything, every possession they have. Uh, many have had to uh, be scattered throughout the districts of the Roman Empire in this particular area. And so they're undergoing a terrific dep- deprivation and suffering, trug- struggles and trials. And it's out of that context that Peter writes to them to encourage them on, to strengthen them in their faith. And as he does so, 1 Peter really then becomes kind of a catechism. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a, just a, an expression of the faith and gives you some definition about what it is to be a Christian and what a Christian can expect. And we come to this section. Uh, remember, the, uh, the section we're looking at now, he's talking to people because they're undergoing suffering and persecution. The temptation can be very, very strong to take matters into their own hands to try to resolve their own problems. Does that sound familiar to anybody? And uh, we, we do that. And in that context, in that culture, they were accused, among other things, of uh, of wrongdoing. In fact, that was their name. Uh, they were doers of wrong. That's how Christians were known in the first century under this Roman persecution. And so Peter writes to them, and among other things, he says, "Don't don't be known as doers of wrong. Do good. In fact, go beyond what anybody else would do, and be people who evidence an, a, a submissive heart and an attitude. And he talks to them about submitting to the very government." that's persecuting them. And that's a very difficult thing to do. But he says this, this will serve to silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Then he says, and, and, and if you're a slave, and remember, most of the Christians in the first century were what? They're slaves. And he says, you slaves, rather than rebelling from your masters, you submit to them. You submit to them with a good attitude. And this, this is, this is phenomenal because in doing so, now they don't become a source of problem, but rather they, they are, they become a source of of blessing in that particular culture. And he goes on now, and in the verses we're going to look at, he shows them their example. This is, this is the call. I've entitled the message, uh, Following in Jesus' Steps. This is what we are all called to, whether you're a first-century Christian, whether you're a Middle Ages Christian, or you are a 20th, 21st-century Christian. We're to follow in Jesus' Steps. And what exactly does that mean? Well, we're going to look tonight, and we're going to see. Before we look at the passage, I want to ask you a question. Has anybody here ever... Signed some, signed a contract, or agreed to buy something without looking at the fine print. Just a few of you, okay. And later on, having realized what you've done, you just kind of regret that decision. You say, what have I done? What have I gotten myself into? And hopefully, we all learn, and, and we learn that when we do, uh, we do sign on the dotted line, we want to make sure we read the details of our commitment. We want to read the fine print, know what we're signing for, right? Well, I'm going to suggest there's a great parallel there. There's a parallel for Christians. There are a lot of Christians who, when they signed up, so to speak, didn't investigate the details of their commitment. And one of the most significant and substantial details of the Christian commitment, may I suggest, is the detail of suffering. Suffering. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. I believe that there are lots and lots of people who, becoming a Christian, thought they were going to get a bed of roses and they were shocked to discover the thorns when they went to find the roses. We are going to be persecuted. We are going to suffer. You say, why is that? Well, among other reasons, because... We are, when the minute you become a Christian, you become an enemy of the world. You become an enemy of those spiritual forces that energize the world system. That is the devil himself and his demons. And he opposes God's plan. And he stirs up the world system to oppose the plan and the work of God. So we become an enemy of the world and an enemy of the devil. So it's very... Very understandable then that we would experience suffering, persecution, trials, difficulties. Have you ever wondered, uh, you know, things, things are going along fine, all of a sudden things start crashing in and you say, what, what have I done wrong? What, what's, why me? What, what, what has happened here? The great why me question. It may be that you've done nothing wrong. It may be that you're smack in the middle of God's will. Well, may I suggest to you that that indeed invites suffering and persecution. That invites it, as we shall see. I want you to read with me these verses, verses 21 through 23, in this particular passage. Actually, back up to verse 20. He says, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? I mean, you deserved it. There's no virtue in, in receiving a beating for doing wrong. He says, but if you suffer for doing good, And you endure it. This is commendable before God. In other words, this is pleasing with God. This is intrinsically appealing to God if we are willing to suffer and to do so for doing what's good and right. Verse 21, notice this. He says, To this you were what? You were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in His steps. And he goes on now to characterize Jesus. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Beloved, may I suggest to you that suffering is a very, very important part of the believer's life. It is. You may not want to hear that, you may not want to acknowledge it, you may want to debate it, but the reality is that suffering is a very, very, very important part of the believer's life. I want to call your attention to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Listen to Jesus' words, verses 23 and 24. Jesus said to them all, if anyone would come after me, in other words, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to be a believer, then you better be prepared, you better count the cost, because you're going to have to what? Deny yourself. You're going to have to take up your cross. How often? Daily. Daily. Not just once a week or once a month or every so often. Daily and follow him. He says, uh, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for me will find it. Tremendous. That speaks to the whole issue of, of suffering. This is a very real dynamic. And so you're going to say, well, well, why would anybody, anybody want to become a Christian if suffering is, a, is the key component of the Christian's life? Well, stay with me. Listen on. There's tremendous reason to do so. Now, we are called to do good, aren't we? Hasn't Peter said that? Jesus said that? All right. We're called to do good, and we are also called to be willing to suffer in doing good. So don't look for a badge. Don't look for some attaboys. When you do good, as a Christian, you can expect opposition, you can expect suffering, you can expect it. And we are to what? Endure it patiently. For Christ's sake, just as He suffered for us. Now, we have various images of Jesus, don't we? By that I mean, some people think of Jesus as the baby Jesus. That's the Christmas Jesus in the, in the, in the, uh, the, the manger. Other people have a picture, an image of Jesus as uh growing up in Nazareth, as a young boy growing up, a son of a carpenter. Indeed, even in Jerusalem, when he um mar- when the, when he when he amazed the, the leaders of Judaism in the temple. Do you remember that? When he was just a young boy. We also have an image of Jesus as a gentle and loving teacher, don't we? Compassionate, merciful. Uh, a healer who could heal every disease, who could raise people from the dead. We have various images of him. We have images of him as uh, literally a courageous and bold preacher and teacher who spoke with such authority, the Gospels say, that people marveled at his words. They marveled at the things he said. We have an image of Jesus as the virtual model of manhood He is the epitome of a man in every sense of that word, the consummate human being. And in all those images, all those images to one degree or another are are true. We see him reflected in the gospel accounts. And we can learn from his life as we look at his person, we look at his goodness, at his kindness, at his compassion. We can learn as we look at his wisdom. But... There is an image of Christ that surpasses all of these. And it's a significant image. And in a sense, it is the truest perception of Christ and the one that is, I believe, the most necessary for us to focus on. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He sums it all up when he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the image. That's the image that Paul knew. The proper image of Christ, then, for us, is as the crucified one. The crucified one. The truest perspective of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the truest perspective of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, is found where? On the cross. That's where it's found. That's the Jesus that you and I focus on. You can look at Him in all these other aspects, all these other arenas, but you have to come to Him, and the most, the most important, uh, image of Him is of on the cross. And so as we look to Jesus, who is, in the writer, uh, to the Hebrews words, the author and perfecter of our faith, we must look at Him in His suffering. That is key. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the what? The cross. Do you see? The writer to the Hebrews understands this principle, understands this truth, and focuses in on Jesus on the cross. He is the suffering Jesus. That is the focus for us. Now you may say, oh, I, don't want to, I don't want to deal, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear that. But that's where we have to come. That's where we ha- if we and I are to be effective in our lives as Christians, if we are to demonstrate a totally different character and nature, it must be demonstrated in the context of what? Suffering. And suffering for doing good. That is God's design, that is God's plan, that is God's purpose, indeed, that is God's will. So the focal point for every Christian must be on the suffering Christ. The focal point for every Christian must be on the suffering Christ. Nowhere do we see Him so clearly as on the cross, in His deity and in His humanity, on the cross. Nowhere do we see His work being accomplished as clearly as on the cross. There is, in his suffering, he is most completely revealed. Beloved, you and I, in our suffering, are most completely revealed. Think about that. You are most completely revealed as a Christian in the midst of your suffering. Nowhere else do we see him as clearly revealed. And this is what Peter is trying to get across to us in this passage. This is what is in His mind. He focuses on the perspective of the suffering Jesus. Again, if I can call your attention back to verse 21, He says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. To this we were called. We're called to this. It's non-negotiable. We were called to this. This is God's plan, His design. He said, "You say, well, now, now, just exactly what we were called—what were we called to?" We'll go back up to verse twenty. To suffer for doing good, and endure it. This is commendable before God, beloved. We know that the kingdom of darkness, and this world, energized by the kingdom of darkness, is arrayed against us. We talked about that at some length last week, didn't we? The devil the devil is looking for every opportunity to unsettle the plan and the people of God and he's looking to use Christians who what who are disobedient who aren't maintaining a, a healthy wise testimony and so we know that he's attacking us we know that we are under attack we are going to suffer unjustly basically for what is right for for being a christian just for being a christian We're going to suffer just for being a Christian. Isn't that exciting? How many are thrilled at that prospect? We should be. Let's try it again. How many are thrilled at that prospect? I have a few more volunteers. All right. See, we we shrink back from this. I don't want to do it. I don't want to engage it. I don't want to have to suffer. But you see, we have to come to grips with the reality that this is what we are called to and this is where our faith is most clearly seen and we are most productive for God's sake is in the midst of our suffering. So we have to come, we have to be willing to step up to 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 uh, to understand that and to be willing to embrace it. There's no way around it. Any person who's going to follow Jesus Christ, any person who's going to live a righteous Holy life is going to be rejected by the world. Now you think, well, how could that possibly be? The world Doesn't the world want righteous people? Doesn't the world want righteousness? Doesn't the world want peace? No, look around. They say they do. The world says it does. When you and I, before we became Christians and we were part of the world system, we said, oh, we want peace, we want peace. But what were we willing to do to bring it about? What sacrifices were we willing to make? Not many, I venture to say. The world, if I can say it this way, wants very, very little to do with purity and righteousness. The world wants very little to do with purity and righteousness. People want to live like they want to and they want to do their own thing. That's simply, that's simply the the truth of the matter. We live in a sinful world. We live we we are sinners. We've been saved out of that world. We still have a sinful nature that we must contend with. People are going to ridicule, they're going to mock, they're going to ignore, abuse, bypass, persecute anyone who is truly living for Jesus. Have you experienced that? Have you have you made your faith manifest out in the world, in the workplace, in places where where all of a sudden now you're beginning to to feel something, sense something, resistance, uh, abuse even. Uh, I remember when I first became a Christian, I was so excited, so thrilled. I went to all my friends, and they were all very polite in the beginning. They put up with me. They listened and smiled. They said, it's very nice. It's very nice. I'm happy for you. That sounds vaguely familiar to anybody? I'm happy for you. But I was I was too stupid to pick up on the hints and the clues, and I just kept going back and bringing bigger and bigger Bibles. <laughs> Until finally, they began to say, don't push your religion on me. And I'm, I'm going, oh, this is the greatest thing. Why, why, why don't you want to hear this? And I, I began to experience that. I, I experience it still when I step out and talk about the Lord and... Uh, begin to manifest my faith. Most people are not willing, not willing to live unselfish, sacrificial lives. People today want what they want. They want more and more comfort, more and more money, more and more possessions, more and more personal peace, don't infringe on me, don't, don't, don't make me uncomfortable. More and more of recognition, power, I mean we could go on and on couldn't we that's what people want today They want very little to do with a person who sacrifices and they want very little to do with a person who preaches a message of sacrifice I mean just look in your own heart as you as you as you uh, if you watch television every so often there's one of the uh, one of these commercials for um, uh, uh, operation compassion or one of these Rescue the children ministry kind of things that there are, there's, there's tons of them out there. World Vision has them, Food for the Hungry and so forth. And you see these horrible, horrible, desperate images of children starving. And it just rips your heart out. I mean, I can barely stand to watch those. And I feel guilty turning them off but that's just still part of my humanness that, that I, I can't handle it. I don't want to hear any more about it. I don't want to deal with any more suffering. Now, if that's a Christian and a pastor, no less, what about people in the world? When you come and you start talking about sacrifice, that's the last thing they want to hear, and you're going to get rejected. You're going to suffer persecution. Am I making sense? Any this, anybody, anybody experience this, what I'm talking about? So, beloved, we're going to suffer for what's right because the world is opposed to what is right. The world is opposed to what is right. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what we experience. Again, if you've been called to be a Christian, you've been called to be at odds with the world. John says, if you love the world, if you love the things of the world, the love of God is not in you. So the implication is that we don't love the world. We don't love the world's system doesn't mean that we hate people in the world. It means that we, we're different from the world. We, we don't buy into its value system any longer. And as a result of being at odds with the world, as a result, we are going to suffer. And again, if you manifest your Christianity, there will be a hostile reaction. There will be. I was in the health club just yesterday morning and manifested my Christianity, and there was a hostile reaction. People were not exactly desirous to hear me speak of Jesus in a reverential way. I can count on it every single time in the locker room. And he says, Peter says, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. That you should follow in his steps. Isn't that amazing? We've been called to this. So if I can put it to you this way. Jesus, then, has set the standard. Jesus has set the standard for our what? Suffering. He has set the standard. Jesus Christ, for Jesus Christ, now get this, this is important, the path to glory was the path of suffering. Say that with me. For Jesus Christ, the path to glory was the what? Path of suffering. You say, you say does that have to be? What are the implications for me then? This pattern's for us too. Same pattern for us. If I'm to follow in his steps, walk that same path, the path of suffering. You say, how, do you, how can you say that the path to glory was along the path of suffering? Well, I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 8 with me. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Here's the Apostle Paul. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. That means we, we, God's going to put everything in subjection to Christ. He has already, Paul tells us in Philippians. And now he calls us co-heirs with Christ. So we inherit everything that that is his. Isn't that marvelous? Okay, so he says, and heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Now here's the condition. If indeed we what? Share in His what? Sufferings. Sufferings. In order that we may share in His glory. glory. Do you see the connection? There is no glory. We do not inherit the glory. We do not share in the glory. The path to glory is the path of suffering. So I want to go to heaven without any suffering. Is that a possibility? No. no. I want to share in, in Christ's glory. Can I get by? Can I just get into heaven with the skin of my teeth? No. 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 See, people say that. It's, I just want to get in. I don't care. I don't care if I'm a sweet street sweeper in heaven. I just want to get in. What are they saying? I don't want to have any trouble. don't want to suffer. No problems. Just get me in. I don't want to have to sacrifice. Sorry, Charlie. I promise you, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, there is going to be suffering. There is going to be suffering. The greater the suffering for righteousness in this life, the greater the glory to come. The greater the suffering for righteousness in this life, the greater the glory to come. Let me read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You might want to turn there, page 1182. This is a good passage to mark in your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning of verse 8. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. Powerful testimony. We're dying. We're we're submitting to things that really do devastate our pride and our ego. So that what? So that Christ can be seen. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 2? This life I live in the flesh, no longer we, but what? By faith in Christ. No longer I, but it's Christ in me. And so forth and so forth. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, no matter what happens, no matter what I'm experiencing, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I've taken to, and some of you have, 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 have noticed this, people say to me, how are you? I say, I'm better. And they almost instantly people say, oh, were you, be- were you sick? No, no, I'm just better. And they get this crinkly look on their face. What do you mean? I'm better than I was yesterday. How can I say that? Well, Paul says it right here. Inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. I'm better today than I was yesterday by faith. He says, for our light and momentary troubles. Wow. Look how he characterizes his suffering. All the stuff that he's talked about in verse 8 through 11. Our light and momentary troubles. Troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Beloved, again, the path to glory is the path of suffering. And the greater the suffering in this life for righteousness, not for stupidity, for righteousness. (laughs) Not because we've done something wrong. For righteousness' sake, the greater the suffering, the greater the glory. That's what he tells us. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Look at what he says here. In bringing many sons to glory, in bringing many sons to what? Glory. glory. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. suffering. God had, has perfected Christ through suffering. The path to glory, the path to completion, fulfillment for Christ was the path of suffering. That was God's plan. He says much the same thing, the same idea in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he, what? Suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Again, the same idea. Perfection, beloved, by the way, not in the sense that he being imperfect became perfect. See, that, those passages puzzle people. I thought Jesus was perfect. Yes doesn't mean that he was imperfect and he became perfect through suffering. What he's referring to, very simply, is that being perfect, being already perfect, Christ fulfilled the perfection that he was called to. He fulfilled it every possible way. Perfectly fulfilled the law. Perfectly fulfilled the penalty of the law. Perfectly fulfilled God's will. Everything. And he did so through what? Through path of suffering. Through the path of suffering. So the path to glory is the path of suffering. Matthew chapter 10. Jesus is sending out the 12, and, and Matthew records Jesus' words, and, and Jesus tells them that there's going to be treachery, persecution, rejection. He says fathers are going, to, are going to turn in their kids, kids are going to turn in their parents, and so forth. It's going to be a very treacherous time. And he says to them, he says, but... But those who persevere to the end will be saved. And then verse twenty-four is the key verse, and he talks about the 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 uh, uh, student not above the teacher. So if they persecuted the teacher, if the teacher suffers, what's going to be true for the student? Suffering, suffering. So we don't we don't get out of it. We don't get out of it. Well, I thought Jesus did all the suffering. Yes, he bought us out of the slave market of sin with his suffering. But we still are going to, what? Participate in his sufferings. That's what Jesus tells us. Unjust suffering. Say that with me. Unjust suffering. How many of us like to be blamed for someone else's wrongdoing? It's your favorite thing. The first thing we do is what? Defend ourselves. But but that wasn't me. I didn't do it. Right? Didn't we do that as kids? We learned it very effectively as kids, didn't we? And we carry it through the rest of our life. We defend ourselves. We make excuses and so forth. Rather than, as Christians, what? Being willing to suffer unjustly. Boy, yeah, that's tough. It flies against our human nature, doesn't it? So as we go through unjust suffering, Christ is our model. He is our example. If you go back to verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2, he is our example. Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus commit any sins? Did he commit any sins? Did he commit any crimes? Was he guilty of any wrongdoing at all? Was he guilty of any sin? Did he ever have an evil thought? Did he ever say an evil word? Was he executed unjustly? Did he suffer the most unjust, wicked experience of persecution perpetrated on any human being ever? Yes. Yes. Well, now, what can we learn from that? What can we learn from that? Jesus shows us that a person can be in the will of God. Now, stay with me. A person can be in the will of God, and Jesus was, wasn't he? A person can be greatly, wonderfully, eminently gifted by God for ministry. Jesus was, right? A person can be loved by God. He was. A person can be perfectly righteous. He was. A person can be totally obedient to God and everything. He was. A person can believe God perfectly. And yet, he suffered, and his suffering was unjust. He was misunderstood. He was misrepresented. He was hated. He was persecuted. He was murdered. And so what's the point? He gave us the standard of how to respond to unjust treatment. You could never point anything to anything in his life that he did wrong. He was perfectly in God's will at every point and yet he suffered unjustly. He's our example. He's our example. He is the epitome of example. It is possible to be perfect and still suffer. Jesus did. He was the example. Love it extremely. It's extremely shallow theology. And it is an ungodly, unbiblical way to interpret the Bible to say, as some do, that Christians who suffer are out of God's will. And that's a prominent teaching. Well, you must not be in God's will. You're suffering. <laughs> no, you, you could very possibly be right in the smack in the middle of His will and be suffering the worst It's God's will that we suffer for righteousness. It is God's will. And the surprising truth here is that the righteous will suffer and do suffer for their goodness and their godliness. You say, what's the point? Why be good? Why be godly if I'm going to suffer? Because that's the path to what? Glory. Glory. We should expect to suffer because he did. It was his path to glory, and beloved, it is our path to glory. How many want to go to heaven? How many want to be glorified? How many want to suffer? (laughs) Not too sure. (laughs) How many willing to suffer? Yeah, see, that's better. Look at verse 21, the word example that he uses. Interesting word. The word, the word really means, and it describes, something that you would copy exactly, or literally trace over. And all of us have done tracings, haven't we? In school, growing up, we, we put a picture down and we traced over it. That's what the word means. Hupogramos. It's, just, it's something underneath, it's traced over. He is our example. He is, the, he is the underneath thing. And we lay our lives over and we trace out our lives on him. He is the exact example for us. That's what it means. We are to copy him in every single detail. This is part of maturing. This is part of growing up as a Christian. Embracing this whole dynamic and saying, you know what, suffering really is part of, and a substantial part of the Christian experience. Peter says the same thing when he, when he says we are to follow in his steps. He is our example. We're to follow in his steps. In other words, literally, we must put our feet in his footprints. If he's on that path, the path he's on, I'm going to put my feet right in his footprints. That's how exacting Peter and The righteous world is the path of what? Suffering. It's the path of suffering. And how did he respond to all that? How did Jesus respond to all the unjust treatment and the unjust suffering? Look at verses 22 and 23 with me. It's in these passages that Peter will draw from Isaiah chapter 53. Does anybody know what Isaiah 53 is about? Famous, famous passage. It's a description, a prophetic word of the suffering servant. You read Isaiah 53, you see Jesus right there. And so that's the picture that Peter draws on. And indeed, he even quotes from Isaiah 53, 9, in verse 23. But if you look at verse 22, he says, In all of it, in all of his suffering, in all that he did, everything, he committed no sin. Never. Literally, The word is violence, committed no violence, no treachery, no lawlessness. He had no sin. And Peter says further that no deceit was found in his mouth. No deceit was found in his mouth. Question. Where is it? Where is it that sin most easily shows itself? The mouth. The mouth isn't it Jesus said the heart speaks through the mouth didn't he it's the mouth out of the out of the out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks the mouth of Jesus uttered no deceit and the word for deceit means all kind and any kind of evil of the tongue it's not limited to just one or two things it means every kind of evil that the tongue can accomplish The tongue can sin by deception, can't it? It can sin by innuendo, can't it? It can sin by accusation. It can sin by slander. It can sin a whole myriad of ways, the tongue. But no wickedness ever came across his tongue. No violent word ever came across his tongue. He committed no no sin by act. He committed no sin by his tongue. By his mouth. James chapter 3, verse 2, tells us very simply that the mouth, more than any other agency of human, human behavior, reveals the heart. He says, we stumble in many ways, and if anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a what? Perfect man. Able to keep his whole body. If you can keep your mouth, you can keep your whole body in check. And you know the passage in James that talks about the tongue and what a wicked member it is. What a deceitful thing the tongue is. And we all know something of that. So Jesus, Jesus never offended with his mouth, did he? Hence he was what? A perfect man. No sin, no deceit, no evil. He committed no sin and no sin ever crossed his lips. He was absolutely flawless, absolutely sinless, absolutely perfect. Even on the cross. Even on the cross, do you remember what the, uh, what the uh, thief on one side of him said? In Luke chapter 23? He says to the other guy on the other side, he says, we are punished justly for we're getting what we deserve, but this man has what? Done nothing wrong. Even the thief acknowledged that Jesus has done nothing wrong, that he didn't deserve hanging on that cross. No jury could ever find him guilty, and yet his trial, his trial was anything but fair. His trial was absolutely a farce, and all the accusations were lies. If you go back to John chapter 8, and verse 46, Jesus challenges people. He says, if you you can legitimately accuse me of sin, do so. But no one could. Not legitimately. They had to keep silent. Paul rehearsed the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter five, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, who knew no sin. Sinless. Hebrews chapter four verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was, what? Without sin. What's the whole point? He was without sin. He was sinless. No deceit came out of his mouth. All the accusations against him, all the abuse, all the cruelty, all the suffering, absolutely unjust. And he never retaliated. He never, ever sinned. He never said a word. Think about that. Never retaliated. (laughs) He's the model for how you and I should live. He's the model for you and I, how we should suffer, and how we should respond to unjust treatment. I don't know about you, but there are times, and there have been times, and I'm sure there will be more times, when I am falsely accused. And when I'm falsely accused, there are at times... Uh, uh, the desire to rises up in me to re- retaliate, to defend myself, to argue the point. The challenge is to not do that. The challenge is not to do that. Sometimes an unfit word may come out of my mouth. Shame on me. I understand the example. I understand the model. I can't imagine what it's like to never commit a sin. Can you? Think about that. To never commit a sin. Can you imagine what it's like to never, ever have an unfit word come out of your mouth? Put a guard on my mouth, oh God, right? Can you imagine being insulted the way Jesus was insulted and yet not retaliate? (laughs) Amazing. To unjustly suffer and make no threat Unbelievable. Incredible. He was under sustained and repeated provocation. His enemies provoked him to the max. Just to the max. But they could never make him sin. Why? Because there was no sin in his heart. Look over the book of Acts with me. Acts chapter 23, real quickly. First five verses. I want you to see this. Here's Paul. Paul Is hauled up before the Sanhedrin. He is going to be tried. He's going to be judged by the Sanhedrin. Luke records Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Verse 2. At this, the high priest, Ananias, ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Now, those who were closest to Paul said, that was the high priest. And Paul goes, it was? Bummer. (laughs) And he, in effect, apologizes because he knows he's wrong. Now, I can more easily identify with Paul than with Jesus. But Jesus is still the standard, not Paul. You see what I'm saying? Here's an example of the Apostle Paul. Gets smacked right in the face and retaliating, calling the high priest a whitewashed wall. Then he backs down. But nonetheless, he did react, didn't he? He did retaliate. I can identify more with him than I can with Jesus, and yet Jesus is still the standard. Peter tells us, if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, look at this. This phrase, I never really got it until I sat on this verse and looked at it and thought about it and thought about it. Listen to this. They hurled their insults at him. They hurled their insults at him. It's just like... Insult after insult after insult after insult. Not only verbal insults, physical insults. They hurled them at him. The impact of that word hurled is tremendous. They hurled their insults at him. Harsh, violent, unrelenting. And yet he did not, what, retaliate. He did not retaliate. If you remember his trial, if you go back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 26, he stood there and being, being accused, being accused, he took it all, he just took it all, and he remained silent. They shipped him over, they shipped him over to Pilate in Matthew 27, and again, accusation after accusation, unfair accusations, and he did not retaliate. He took it in silence. They shipped him from Pilate over to Herod. And the accusations only heated up. And you read the account in Luke's Gospel. He didn't retaliate. He took it in silence. He didn't argue back. He never said a word. Beloved, his example sets a standard for us. As Christians, we are never to retaliate. You say never? Never to retaliate. Never to retaliate against those who abuse us, no matter how unjust their abuse is. That's the mark of a Christian. You say, how can I do that? Because you have to know who you are. You have to know who the example is. You have to know what the behavior that we're called to is. And it is to absorb and to be willing to suffer unjustly. That's what we're called to. Far, far too many Christians are unwilling to do that. Notice in verse 23. When he suffered, he made no threats. Hard to imagine, isn't it? He made no threats. You have to know that the pain he was going through was incredibly, incredibly painful. Let's just start at the top. They spit in his face. How many would us, how many of us would, would would tolerate someone coming up and spitting in our face, insulting us? There's something in me that wants to rise up and punch their lights out. Spit in my face. They spit in his face. He said nothing. He didn't retaliate. He uttered no threats. They punched him in the face. And not just once, numerous times. Have you ever been punched in the face? You know how hard, you know how that feels, that hurts? Like, all get out. No threats. No retaliation. He took it. They whipped him mercilessly. And literally tore the flesh off his back. They pulled the hair of his beard out of his face. He took it. Didn't retaliate, didn't utter any threats. They jammed thorns into his brow. No threats, no retaliation. They hammered nails through his wrists and his feet. The pain was searing. There's a nerve that runs down down your arms called the medium nerve. And when a nail or something severs that nerve, it will take your head off. The pain is so intense. They hung him up on that cross. They jeered at him. They mocked him. They challenged him unceasingly. The verbal abuse was immense. Beloved, the physical and verbal cruelty, the provocation, the agitation, the ugly, wicked, venomous hatred that they exhibited towards Jesus, any normal human being is going to well up with feelings of retaliation. Especially when it's all not deserved when it's unjust. He threatened no one. He threatened no one. And he could have issued some terrific threats, couldn't he? (laughs) Think about it. I mean, I'm, I'm amazed. The amazing soberness you have to kind of get a handle on this. The amazing soberness of His silence is most appreciated when you remember who He is. He is the eternal God in human flesh. He is the one who spoke it into existence. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, He is the one who holds it all together. That's who He is, and He is taking it. My That's mind-blowing. One word from his mouth could have blasted them into eternal hell, couldn't it? One word. One word from his mouth would have fried them to a crisp and the earth would have opened up and swallowed the ashes. One word. But he never, ever threatened them. And when he finally did speak about them... He said this. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. what an appraisal. What an appraisal. Forgive them. They know not what they have done. All that. And he suffered unjustly, never uttering any threats, never retaliating, and hanging on the cross. He finally speaks of them. And he says, Father, forgive them. That's the essence of our faith. That's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. That's what we aspire to. That's what we must embrace, beloved, as Christians. Otherwise, we're no different from the world. We're no different from the world. We we hold no hope for the world. It was for those very people who were unjustly killing him that he was dying. He was on the cross paying the penalty for their sins and for the sins of everyone just like him. But he knew, he knew that the glory that was to come was through that path of suffering. He knew he wasn't going to sit down at the right hand of God unless he went through that path and was obedient unto death. So he accepted it. He accepted it without retaliation. He accepted it without threats. He accepted it without anger, without revenge. You say, how could he do that? How could you suffer so totally in an unjust way and not retaliate? How can you possibly do that? Peter gives us the secret. The end of verse 23 Here's the secret. Here's how. Read this with me. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who what? Judges justly. Instead, instead of retaliating, instead of threatening, instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That word in trust means to hand over to someone to keep. To hand over to someone to keep. He just handed himself over to God. He said, you keep me. You keep me. You keep me. Doesn't he say, I'll never leave you nor forsake you? To the end of the age, I'm always with you. You keep me. I trust myself to you. That's the only thing, because I know that you know. I know that you prepared this. I know that I must go through this path of suffering. I know that I must endure it patiently. I know that I'm going to do it for good. I trust myself to you. This is your will for me. This is your will for me. I won't retaliate. I won't utter any threats. It's your will for me. We hand ourselves over to God. We entrust ourselves to Him. We know that He judges righteously. We know that He judges justly. We know that no one can pull the wool over God's eyes. He says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. You do what I say. You trust me. You entrust your life to me. Beloved, that's the only way we can do it. You remember what Jesus finally said on the cross? His final words. He was always handing himself over to the Father until finally, the very last thing he says on the cross is what? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Last words. Into your hands I commit my spirit. He's always committing himself. He's always entrusting himself to his Father who judges justly. Guess what that saves you from? It saves you from the spirit of wah. It saves you from the spirit of wah. It saves you from going, oh, why me, why me, poor me, and having a thumb-sucking party. Our flesh is tempted for that, but we resist it. We say, no, this is God's will for my life. I'm going to suffer for doing right. I'm going to live my life honorably to serve Him. I'm going to do what's right. Oh well, boy, if I know, I just know. I'm going to do what's right, and I'm going to pay for it, right? Yes. I'm going to suffer for it. Beloved, I'd rather pay for it in the short run now and get glory forever than to skip it now and pay for it for eternity. Think about it. Beloved, when you are mistreated, when you are treated unjustly, when you are judged unjustly, you are to follow the standard of Jesus Christ. There's no two ways about it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. He's the example. We're to follow in His steps. We're not to retaliate. We're not to threaten. We are to be remarkably different people. We are to be people who accept it. Accept that suffering and simply, continuously entrust ourselves to the care of the one who will bring about a righteous verdict for our lives. And he will grant us eternal glory. He will grant us that eternal glory. It comes through the path of suffering. God makes it right. You're not going to make it right. I'm not going to make it right. You're not going to explain it away. You can't argue people into this. You can't say, oh, but you don't understand. Let me explain why I did. <laughs> trust God. Trust God. No matter what happens, no matter what happens, trust God. and trust your life to Him. You don't need to retaliate. You don't need to threaten. You realize that suffering is indeed the path to glory. Stephen understood this. Stephen learned from Jesus as his model. If you remember in the book of Acts, at the end of chapter 7, the whole of chapter 7 is devoted to Stephen's sermon to the Jewish leaders. And at the end of the chapter, they're so enraged that they drag him out and they stone him. And Luke records this. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my soul. Sound kind of vaguely reminiscent of what Jesus said. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Ooh, man. I'd be on my knees and get him, God. Get him, God! Call fire down from heaven on him, God! No. Stephen understood Jesus' model and example. If Stephen could do it, we can do it. We just have to make up our mind. We have to say, this is is the model. This is God's will. I'm going to evidence my faith. I'm going to manifest my faith. I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to honor God in all my behavior, my attitude, my language, and everything. And I'm going to suffer for it. but I'm going to bear up under it. And I'm not going to retaliate and I'm not going to utter any threats. I'm going to entrust myself to him who judges justly. Amen. Father, thank you for your word to us. Lord, I pray that you would cause these things to just permeate our hearts and minds. Lord, you know what chickens we are. You know how weak we are. You know, Lord, that we will do everything we can to avoid suffering. We'll run from it, hide from it. Lord, and when we do suffer, we just we resort to the flesh. That it's not your will for us. I thank you for so clearly pointing this out through your servant Peter to us. Help us to see how we should live. How we should respond to unjust accusations unjust suffering, not react to it, Lord. Fathers, we come to your table as we take communion together tonight as a congregation. Lord, as we meditate on those elements, that little piece of matzah cracker and that little cup of juice, that picture to us, Jesus' own suffering on that cross. Lord, help us, empower us, Lord, Strengthen us, that we may indeed be willing to follow in his steps. Thank you, Lord. If you're a Christian and you're with us as a guest tonight, we invite you to take communion. And the protocol is real simple. The trays, the ushers will pass the trays down the rows, and the little tray of matzo will come first, and the juice. Take one of each and hold on to them. We want to wait till everyone is served use the intervening time to reflect on your own life and attitude how you deal with suffering how you deal with persecution being wrongly accused those kinds of things are you one who retaliates are you one who utters threats and back are you one who is learning to be like jesus as you contemplate those elements and contemplate this tremendous christian life and maybe you're weak in some areas now's a great time to say lord i I need a change in my life i need to to be more like you. Ask Him for strength. Ask Him to help you. Then I'll come back, and when everyone's served, we'll take communion together.